Jeff, welcome to another week. Your new home office is looking fantastic with your BYU flex behind you. It's been along, isn't it? I mean, I'm not there yet. Uh, you know what I found that I forgot to tell you about until right now? Remember Pinnacle Place? That was going to be our, our million-dollar money. Uh, yes, th- that was. Uh, I found one. Oh, we, we need ordering to, samples. We I need, need to bring that up. We need to bring that back. It was a good idea. We need to put them on shirts. We need to figure out a design that looks good on a shirt. Yeah, we had a couple that we could do that I yeah. think would look okay on a shirt, but uh, maybe we need to throw those up on the store. So if you do not remember, uh, Pin- Pinnacle Plays was one of our original ideas of just making cool posters with like plays charted out, right? Was that, that you, was it prior to the podcast even? I think it was. Uh, it was alongside the podcast. It was around the same time. Okay. Because um, when we had our uh, Serbian friend drawing stuff up for us, which is oh, great. Right. Fiverr is wonderful, right? Like we had, we had this kid in Serbia and we paid him five bucks a pop to draw these things out. There's a little going back and forth first because I had to explain to him, like I spent like an hour with him one time <laughs> on the phone, like explaining like, no, this is how you need to draw it out. And like, you know, the zigzag means emotion. So when I put that, that's not just a scribble, like that needs to be there and kind of what it needs to look like, but he got it down pretty good. And the, um, but pinnacle place. Yeah. We need to, we need, need to, to do some, that. The, the posters look okay, but it's kind of, we wanted to go with the retro poster look, but it's kind of hard because you kind of have to have your whole office. You know, the idea was like, this is something that's kind of classier that could like go into a legitimate office right. space. But it's like, if, you know, a lot of people, if you're in a cube, you can't really, you know, you're not going to throw that up. You don't have enough room. And if well, you're going to, you know, it ended so, up being a lot of like, like the cool plays. If people don't remember, we charted like the actual plays of like iconic BYU plays. Yeah, let right? me and see we, what we had up. Uh, clinical play. I remember we had the one that I found was the Wisconsin Bucky. It was the the what was it? Was it Hefo? I think it was Hefo. The little wide receiver pass to uh, Marone Lalupudutau that went for a touchdown when BYU beat Wisconsin. And so we had like these iconic type plays. Oh. And there's a bunch of them. Forgot but by to... and large, Etsy BYU's forgot. Icon- Etsy charges you to have stuff listed. And so delist everything. Yeah. Cause you have to like refresh your listings. Yeah. That's dumb. Um, so what I found is that most of BYU's coolest plays, right? Like uh, Beck to Harleen or, you know, everything short of like the Hail Mary and the Miracle Bowl, they, they really took up like 30 yards. And the way we had it designed is the retro look gave us a 100 yard fields there's a lot of green space and i don't know yeah. how we fix that yeah so we had back to harleen uh the Taysom hurdle oh, and yeah. um the 2009 hall to george luke staley down the sideline and then bucky it's wisconsin and so all of them yeah they look good on a poster um but I think they will look better on a shirt. So maybe I agree. We need to get back to that. But anyway, Jeff, America is soft now. Our generation is soft. And like most oh, yeah. things, it is all boomers' fault. Right. Yeah. Like it's boomers always complained about like, oh, kids these days, everyone wants a participation trophy. Who the hell was giving those out, Jeff? It wasn't know, me. You and I, thing. when we were seven playing T ball, we weren't going down to the local trophy shop saying, Hey, excuse me, sir. I yeah. struck out in T ball. Can I get a trophy, please? Yeah. No, that was our parents, right? Like that is all the we weirdest if- thing about it, right? Like they, 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 everybody wants to complain about millennials and Gen Z being so entitled. And that's fair. But who was the one making us entitled? It was the boomers. Right. And it really, and so I read, I saw an article 
this week. And in the article, some advice thing. And this just shows how soft our generation is. I'm really embarrassed for ourselves as elder millennials. I am 27. In the last year, I landed my dream job. My job has purpose. My skills and qualifications are used and challenged. My coworkers and supervisors are unparalleled, but alas, 40 hours a week is not sustainable. I, I have hobbies. I have creative pursuits and therapy and laundry. I own a small dog, so I'm very busy. Because my partner and I are considering starting a family in a few years, because I already feel like there's not enough time in a week. I wonder what getting away from the 40 hour work week looks like. I have considered self-employment, trying out the artist lifestyle, going back into academia, mildly rejecting capitalism, but maybe I should just get over it. Thoughts? Britt from Indianapolis. Yes, Britt from Indianapolis. Get over it. Like 40 hours a week. Like, (laughs) Do you realize how cushy life is? Like if you are listening to this right now in this moment, wherever you are in the world, the fact that you have the time to be sitting here listening to our podcast means that your quality of life is like in the top two to 3% of people on the planet and definitively in the top half a percent of all people that have ever lived on the history of God's green earth, right? Like it's, you gotta, the if what with a small dog that is and doing your laundry, that is making it impossible, like 40 hours a week, even if you do 40 hours a week, okay, that's, you're, that's working eight hours a day. If you get a full eight hours of sleep a night, that's still eight other hours a day to do crap. Like what I don't understand what, when half of your waking out work is only taking up half of your waking hours. And that is debilitatingly big because you have a puppy. I just want to know, like, this is one of those things where people, they complain about this, but if they actually stop to look at how much time is this Brit, which I guess that could be a guy or a girl. I don't know. This person is how much of it is, how much time do they spend on TikTok? How much time do they spend on Netflix? How much time do they spend going out to eat and like having a three course meal with drinks and spending two hours at dinner every night, right? Like it's, this is not, you don't have a 40 hour work week problem. You need a crap go in chapter 11 of preach my gospel and read about some time management and get over yourself, Britt. This is hot. This is, this is a hot take. I, I mean, to play devil's advocate, I don't enjoy working eight hours a day. Oh, I don't either, but that's life, right? Like I would much rather be sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day than working 16 hours a day, hoeing a field. That's true. And that is, I think, I mean, I agree with you. I'm trying to play devil's advocate here, but I, I, I mostly agree with you, but I remember Madagascar. Uh, there was a guy that I knew. His it was chapter hands... chapter eight is used time wisely, by the way. I, I think it was chapter eleven Ch- at one time. Wasn't it? Ch- chapter eleven is uh, help people make and keep commitments. It's the other important one. Those are the two mm. most important ones. Everything I, I was out, uh, I was Gen one of preach my gospel. I'm going to go ahead and say it changed because I remember it being chapter eleven. But at any rate, and I'm showing Garrett on on the camera here. I met a guy and his hands were like this. Like just permanently like this. So you're you're like making a claw, like, like a like a claw. You, you like, have the the Baylor Sikkim hands. That's yeah, what you're doing. like and they were permanent, both hands. And I I finally had the courage one day to ask him. It's like, dude, what is wrong with your hands? Oh, he's like, oh, this is what my hands look like from work. I was like, what do you mean? What is your work? And the the direct translation is he's a rock maker. I was like, what does that mean? You're a rock maker. Rocks kind of make themselves, fella. Like, what are you making rocks? And his job. From sunup to sundown, there was no time clock. It was just when the sun comes up, you go to work. And when the sun goes down, you go home. His job was to take a big rock, 
and hit it with a hammer until they were small rocks. He made rocks. That was his job. And he had done this job for years to the point that his hands were permanently like, I mean, think about it, right? Like hit a rock with a hammer for 16 hours a day. You're going to have that like crippled feeling like you got cramps in your hands, right? That was what his hands looked like all the time. When we work for 40 hours a week, it's inconvenient, right? Like there's no denying it's inconvenient. And we're not even working. You Uh, and I are recording this on our lunch break. We yep. sit on our Discord. People, I know you're watching YouTube. Yep. Everyone, you know, everyone's seen the Elmo meme, like boss everybody. makes a dollar, I make a dime. So that's why I poop on company time. Right? Everybody, like, everybody does it. Right. Like we, you know, your your 10 minutes a day of bathroom breaks adds up to a full week of PTO a year. Right. We're all doing it. <laughs> what what I what I find interesting here about Brit, a couple of things that really stand out about her comment that are real legitimate problems in society, but for totally different reasons than what Brit is getting at. One, I have considered self-employment. If she thinks that self-employment is going to be less work than 40 hours a week, she's just woefully naive. And that's kind of what you're saying is that, whoa, come on, let's not be soft. But if you think running your own business is going to save you time from working an eight to five, you're an idiot. But the one that really stands out I have considered self-employment, blah, 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 or going back into academia. Now, I can only assume that going back into, as she relates it to her job, is her job's not going to be a student, right? So I have to assume that this means her job is going into teaching. And I know teachers, and I know that teachers work hard, and teachers don't get paid enough. But if there is a mindset here of, wow, I feel like working 40 hours a week is a problem. I guess I'll go teach. We've got a real problem there because if that person, I don't know, she uses academia. I don't think people really say academia when they're talking about junior high or high school. Maybe she's talking about college. And if the idea of I'm going to go be a professor at a university because I want to save time, and that's the person that we're paying thousands and thousands of dollars to teach us, okay, that's, that's flawed. Let's open our eyes. And if that person is the one who I, I want to save some time and I want to go into teaching, and so I'm going to go teach at the junior high or high school, then that is a problem that every teacher in the world should hate because why can't teachers get paid more? Because there's a stigma that they don't work. But if Britt from Indianapolis is saying, I don't want to work, I'll go be a teacher, then how on earth are the hardworking teachers ever going to get more money? They're not. So those yeah. are my two real takeaways from this paragraph. And really, and I understand, okay, therapy, that's a real thing. Yep. Pursuits, but even then therapy, if you're working eight to five, nine, to, if you're working nine to five, you got your lunch break in there. You got before yeah. work, you got after work. Yeah. What, how many sessions do you go into a week? Even if you're going twice a week with a little bit of commute time, that says that takes up four hours. So now you got 36 non-working waking hours left. Like it's let's and get a planner. Can. Let's let's you got Saturdays and Sundays and Saturdays yeah. and Sundays, right? That's we're now just that's, really that's talking what we week. should argue about, Garrett. Is who decided five days was the work week? I would rather work four tens. So that makes more sense. I can actually answer this question. Well, of course you can. Historically, there was a six day work week, and Whoa. Sunday was off for the Christian believers to go to yeah. church on because most people wanted to go to church on Sunday. 
then in cities that had large influxes of Jewish populations, they needed to start giving off Saturday for the Sabbath. Yep. So there was enough people in like New York where they said, well, half the people are going to be gone on Saturday and the other half are going to be gone on Sunday. Well, let's just work five days a week. So what we really need is a religion that, that focuses on Friday. Yes. And it needs to be very prominent. Yes. Like we need right. the seventh day Adventists to become like the fifth day Adventists. Yeah. You know, that's okay. what, that's what we need here. But yeah, Brit, you need to get a planner. Yeah. And you need to start tracking how you're actually using your time. Yeah. And be a little more deliberate. Use your, do your laundry on the Saturday, you know, meal prep your lunches. You know, it's not, Dinner doesn't have to be a three-hour ordeal every night. I make dinner every night after I and, get done working for my family. My partner and, and I are considering starting a family in a few years. Okay, one, that's not today's problem. Today's time management is not because you have a family, because you don't. You're starting one in a few years. I have three children, right? Like, yeah, it's time-consuming, but that's being a parent. That isn't your work's fault, because if you have more free time, then that child is just going to fill it up with whatever they yes, want. To do. You do not have free time. You no. have work hours and then it is whatever the balance of that is, is filled and, with your kids. And mildly rejecting capitalism. We're not going to get into this. This, this has to be my last thing. It, I can't get started on this because then we will go f- into a full on economic podcast and we yeah, have to save and, and that look, for the off season. And, and if people want to hate capitalism or they want social, whatever, I, I don't care, whatever, whatever you want to believe, that's fine. But in either scenario, in either ism, there's still work involved. It's not like socialism is going to be, we all just sit on our couch. Like people still have to do stuff. Right. And that's what doesn't, yeah. And I think there's a very large disconnect here because, right, like the default state of humanity is poverty, starving, and scavenging for food. Yeah, that is the default state. You don't buy a house, you find a shelter. You, yes, you build it yourself. You grow right. it yourself. You hunt right. yourself, right? Yeah. And that is the default state. And so, yeah, this measure, I'm going to reject capitalism because then I won't have to work. Like, what, yeah, what do you think is you're not going to, there's not going to be teachers? There'll be no academia. And, you yeah. know, it's, Brit, you I, I almost want to say, like, just keep considering having a family, right? Just keep that a consideration, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> but anyway, let's move in to... Wait, we got one more thing. Her okay. dream job was a 40-hour-a-week job. Like, can we just talk about that? She landed oh. her dream job. She's very clear about it. Landed her dream job, and it works eight to five. You got to aspire higher, Britt. Like, come on, these are dreams. Let's, let's, let's shoot for the sky here, not shoot for an eight to five. Yeah. I mean, even eight to five, I don't even, I mean, I work a nine to five. Right. And that's, <laughs> and it's, you know, and what it, she, it's lucky, right. If you can get done with a week and under 40, you're living life blessed. Right. Cause there's always more crap to do. Insanity. Uh, but let's move on. Speaking to uh, other work and time consuming things involving lots of travel. I almost don't want to do. I, I, I am so tired of talking about Bronco. Dude, this is Bronco week has been worse than rivalry week. Oh in terms gosh. of like Twitter of the pissing like, match of we're going to boo him. No, we need to worship the ground. He walks on like, nobody, just let it yeah, go. Like, why can't we find the medium? Nobody's going to boo this man. Like he did great things. Let's Honestly, clap and if, be happy. If people boo him, it will be, 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 it will be because the 
as just like mocking the over swing of the other direction of probably like we true. need to roll out the golden carpet for this dude. Yeah, probably true. I, and that's what I, I don't understand, right? Like, let's really look at what Bronco did. Okay. Did how many conference championships did BYU win during his tenure? Two? Yes. Or was it three? Uh two. Just two. two. Yep, 2006, they, 2007, because 2008 they, Utah won it, and then 2009 TCU. And 10 so TCU. did they did they win any BCS games? Nope. Best bowl game they went to was the Vegas Bowl. Did they ever uh, run the table and finish with an undefeated season? No, at best eleven and two. Okay, so what did this man do? Like he resurrected a program. Okay, great. Uh, he resurrected a program that in 2001 went. 12 and two. Is that what the record was? 11 and two, whatever it was. Um, he resurrected a program that in 96 so 10 years before the resurrection was playing on a new year's day bowl and, and it got 14 and one. Right. I mean, these, these are all factual statements. Yeah. Yep. Now I don't want to downplay what he did. We talked about this a little bit on our fireside chat last week. I don't want to downplay what he did. What he did was great and he deserves a ton of credit for it. The honor code issues that were hurting the BYU football program at the end of Gary Croton's tenure. Charges were dropped, and I don't know. I was young enough that I didn't really care. I don't know if they were dropped because they were found to be fabricated or if they were dropped because of a lack of evidence or whatever it is, but that's like the big thing. There were the five or six players that were charged with whatever it was, some sort of sexual assault. I don't remember what the exact charges were. Charged with some sort of sexual assault. thing. It was bad. It was very, very bad. And it, and it looked worse than it even was, right? Like it looked awful and it was bad. Those charges ended up being dropped. Now, whether those kids could have stayed at school or not, who knows? But at that point, that was when the switch was made. I, we, we make this assumption, and maybe it's an accurate assumption. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But it is an assumption when we, we talk about it as if it's fact. That if Gary Croton would have stayed one more year, then obviously those six players that were charged with sexual assault or whatever it was, that was just the precursor. It would have gotten so much worse. And maybe that's true. I don't know that that's true. That is an assumption we are making. They could have been bad eggs, right? Like Kalani Sataki, uh, he had Francis Bernard that was making threats to police officers on camera. That, that was pretty bad, right? Ula Tolatau, like he he had some pot charges. Neil Pau got a DUI. Like there, there were some pretty bad things that happened early in, in Kalani's time too. But he had the requisite time to figure it out and to implement his culture and to learn what, you know, how to work the inner workings of the honor code office and how, how it could all be enforced and blah, 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 blah. And given that time, he now runs a pretty damn clean program. Had Croton had that time, and now keep in mind, right, this is all 2001, 2004, right? It, it was pre-social media, and so like the need to quickly figure out the answers to these things was maybe a little bit less prevalent than it, than it is today. Had Croton had the requisite time to figure it out and go, whoa, okay, hey, this is bad news, could he have done it? Sure. I mean, Bronco did, right? Bronco figured it out pretty quickly. And, and it's not like and, and Bronco wasn't he also there in 2004. Had, like, That's the, the thing that I, I can't understand. Right. Is Bronco, like they were mostly defensive players, if I remember right. They were players that presumably 
Bronco recruited and brought into BYU, right? I mean, am I wrong? Yeah, no, definitely. They, it was, and so even then, if you look though too, speaking of Bronco. It's a family show here. It's a family show. My kids are both losing it today and everybody in our house is tired. Um, Kyle Van Noy was the first Bronco recruit that got drafted. And that was in 2014. And he had his own issues before he got here. Right. Um, and so, because even if you go back to, I mean, okay, well, actually did do, so one Bronco, because let's see, uh, when did Sean Nua enroll? Did he actually get, because he did get drafted, but he, um, let's I don't see, uh, but I'm just uh, like- he, he signed, oh, yes, he, he redshirted in 2003. And so he came, yeah, so he was there for Broncos first class as a, so maybe we'll count but that was just as a dc but so as a head coach okay kyle van noy was the first draft pick that bronco signed you know they first won a player that played their whole career started their career and finished under bronco that got drafted was ezekiel Ansa. that doesn't count because he was a walk-on he was not recruited he showed up you know, we're not gonna i'm not gonna count him you can count for development but in terms of recruiting right he's there kyle van noy I'm not counting Bronson Kafusi because with Steve on staff, Bronson was going to come. It didn't, it would not matter. One uh, day I, who... I would have agreed with you prior to Devin Kafusi leaving because right. that, that I, and, I and think if, that if the could have left. Right. right. So. And if Steve was still on staff, Devin probably would not have left. Right. So it's, you know, that was, that, that's it, probably true. As and long I think as you're Steve... probably right, but let's uh, give him the credit. Let's give okay. it to him. So then you have Jamal, Fred Warner and Sione Takitaki. So, and even then, Sione played uh, most of his career under them. But, you know, actually, we're saying John Beck, you know, all these Austin Colley, Dennis Pitta, they're going to, we're going to say those were Croton's guys, then Sione and Fred, that. So then you look at this year, though, Dax Milne, Chris Wilcox, Kyrus Tonga, Zach Wilson. I guess Brady Christensen was signed by Bronco. Yep. Right. So in one season, almost, they have given like, Kalani in this one draft has had as many players that he recruited, developed, and put in the league as Bronco had the entire 11 years he was in Provo. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I keep going back to the honor code thing, right? Because like most of those early draft picks in the Bronco era were recruited by Croton. And that's what we're saying here, right? right. The difference between the Croton honor code issues and the Bronco honor code issues was the Broncos team was winning more football games. People don't like to hear that, but that's the truth, right? Like if it would have been Croton in the midst of a, whatever they were, four and eight, five and seven season, and that's when Joe Sampson and Zach Stout go and, and start beating the hell out of kids at a Beto's, uh, then yeah, that's going to get chalked up as, wow, what a terrible program you're running. Right. But because they were coming off a couple of 10-win seasons, when Joe Sampson and Zach Stout go and start beating the hell out of kids at a Beto's, they say, ah, a couple of bad eggs. If it would have been Croton's team that starts a damn brawl at the, after a bowl game, starts whatever, we're going to argue about it, participates in a brawl after a bowl game, it would have been, look at the lack of discipline in Gary Croton's program. But because they had made it to a bowl game, and because that year, particularly, it was like this ceremonious recover from what could have been a really bad year and get back to a bowl game, it was kind of overlooked. And so 
the question that I posed in, in our uh, fireside chat earlier this week was, does Bronco get too much credit for resurrecting the program? And I think the answer is yes, with the little asterisk of, but he won football games. And you'll overlook a lot of things if people win football games. That's it. That, I mean, that's, we can try to say that we're not that way, that we, have, you know, that football isn't number one, blah, 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 blah. blah. You'll overlook a lot of things if you're winning football games. And that's what we've done. And that's it. That's, that's what we have done. And, and obviously none of the things have been as bad as what happened under Croton, but that was also an isolated event, right? That was one very, 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 very bad thing. Right. And it's, and even if you look at the strength of schedule too, um, 2004 was a brutal nightmare that in 2003, right. We played three undefeated schools. So if you look at strength of schedule, um, let's see the worst, the toughest, according on, uh, I'm just looking at sports reference, their strength of schedule. Um, 2004 was the toughest season like schedule ever. 2003 was the third. And then 2021 is the fifth actually. So it's, so there is, you know, it's Croton. He, I don't, know that things would not have worked out with those players in a similar fashion, right? Because the yeah. bulk of those games that we had in that run, which we're not taking away anything from 2005 to 2010. That was an amazing stretch. That was on par in terms of a five-year stretch short of 84 winning a national championship in terms of team quality. That was on par and as good, everybody's good as the Lavelle streak. And I think it's better. I think it is probably the best five-year run. It doesn't have the highs, but it's lows during that five-year streak. I think that's the best five-year streak. Maybe maybe there's that time in the 80s, like 81 to 86 was pretty good. But I think that that given who BYU was beating and blah, 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 I, I think that was the best five-year stretch of BYU football history. Yeah, and so there's not a taking that away, but we just want to say like it's not that it was this impossible job that no one else could have done. And yeah. we are grateful for what Bronco did when he was here. He chose to leave of his own accord. He tried to leave the season before, but that didn't work out at Oregon State. So he chose to leave of his own accord. He took the entire staff with him. They, which we can talk about that next, but they took the entire staff with him. He has, there've been a couple other things in terms of, you know, kind of the weird relationship between him and Kalani. Uh, and that staff was totally checked out for the bowl game. We would have beaten Utah in that bowl game if even, you know, if not the entire staff had gone, we would have beaten Utah in that bowl game, right? Because it was, I mean, I don't know if people remember, like that was Robert and I was refusing to wear any BYU gear. And then he like put a shirt on for the sideline, but like during the game and then took it off walking like from the sideline to the locker room, he already had it off and just had like a plain gray shirt on underneath, right? And it was very strange, very strange thing. But now he's kind of this year and it's not, you know, it's people have talked about it and it can be a budding issue, but it seems like, you know, they cannot leave their old stomping grounds alone, right? And it's and, and nor should they. I mean, in fairness, and, and nor right? should they, but it's the I've just never quite understood like the oh, I see Virginia score. I'm like, oh cool, whatever. I don't even think twice about it, but there is just kind of this weird that's like we got dumped, but then it's like we're still gonna I'm gonna root and cheer for Virginia because there are guys and it's like I want that staff to do good, right? Because we need to improve the BYU coaching pool, but 
none of those guys are leaving other than Vic yeah. Soto. None of them are reaching. Like I am shocked that six years in now, Jason Beck has not after, I mean, he put out Taysom. He did great things with Christian Stewart. He, you know, look at what Tanner Mangum was his freshman year versus every other year of his career. And then, and then, what's he, and then he had Bryce Perkins. Yeah. Bryce Perkins. Now he's got Brendan Armstrong. Like why has Jason Beck not gone for a G five OC job? He yeah. could like, he could be that, or a, like he could go to like a Purdue type school, right? Like as an OC, you know, and like a low, mid, low level type position. And it's like, why has he not taken that shot? Why are, are Kelly Papinga and well, okay, we know Nick Howell. We don't need to talk about that. But like, why are Kelly, why is Kelly Papinga still at there? And I see lots of people like, oh, I want Kelly Papinga back as our defensive coordinator. Like, but he's he never was done the, it. He was never done it on his own. He's not, he's only, was only a linebackers coach. Like, why do we think that he would magically be better than Elisa Tuiaki? Right. I mean, these are also, there's also people that say that Justin Ennis should come back. And it's like, dude, he got fired from Utah State. He got pushed out from Utah, fight, demoted at Utah State, and is now at Eastern Washington as a position coach. Like, yeah, just because they're know. somewhere else doesn't mean they're better. Right. You know and I mean? so, and it's, you know, and there's also, you know, like, look at, like you have other guys like Shane Hunter, I think is their safeties coach. Okay. Another Bronco guy. He's that was the, his first job. That his was his first, first paying job. job was a P five position coach. Right. And like Mark Atuaya, I loved him. I think he did a great job with the running backs. He's a fine running backs coach. I, but it's like, he also hasn't gone anywhere. And I don't think he will, he will stay with an eye. I actually for, think he'd come back to BYU given the opportunity. I think he could come back, but it's, you know, it's, he's going to stay because even then he wasn't coaching before he was an admin before he came on the field as that mm-hmm. running backs coach. Right. And mm-hmm. so he, and he will kind of follow an eye. Robert and I is never going to get a head coach job. He will be a coordinator. So Otuaya will probably stay with him, you know, for the long haul, um, you know, in 2J, it's like, he went from coaching JC to being in a P5 job. Like what is, what is his, ceiling but it's the i mean those guys are all kind of older and unique situations but it's the you know it's the why is shane hunter not spread his wings why has why is kelly it's really kelly papinga and jason beck are the two that i am surprised have not said okay i'm gonna take the next step and go out on my own and 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 one of the common arguments or i guess responses to that question is well i mean kalani's defensive staff is the same way but that isn't true uh, we, we saw last year, even Elisa Tuiaki, like he was flirting with Montana state. He interviewed, he wanted that head coaching job. He didn't get it, but even he was looking at, at moving out and that's, you know, Kalani's lifelong buddy. Right. And that's, and so it is interesting. Um, it's very interesting. I, I also don't understand the, I get cheering for him. I do, but there are some that have like they're Virginia fans now ahead of, of BYU fans almost. And it's, it's very strange to me. Yeah. Uh, another common thread, as Virginia has been the focal point of BYU dumb this week, is the recruits that they have taken from BYU. We hear about it all the time, and every time I think just today, Ethan Thomason out of uh, I think he's in Fort Collins, somewhere in Colorado, LDS twenty twenty three offensive lineman, really really good. We both put in crystal balls for BYU. Uh, he got an offer from Virginia. And, and, and we see Virginia offering a lot of members of the church. And I want to talk about this a little bit because I can't think of a more overplayed narrative than Bronco is stealing BYU recruits. It, it, it's, it, it's almost crazy. Like when people talk about it, you would think 
that it is like an epidemic of Virginia is just picking at whoever they want out of Utah. And, and that's what's happening. Which is more overblown. The amount of the percentage of plays in which BYU only rushes, brings ah. three guys on defense and drops eight into coverage or the impact. Of it's close. Bronco. It's very, and, and, and when we're talking about this, we're not saying that neither of those don't, I think that's a good comparison. We're not saying neither of them don't happen. It's just, it doesn't happen as much as it is. Yeah. Is perceived, yep. but at the same time, at least looking at this class, it is a very growing trend, right? They've already got five LDS guys in their class committed. They've got, well, I guess not five, four this year, one last year, right? Of so, it's we know Andrew Gentry, very highly recruited, Joe Brown out of Lone Peak, kid this year, Carson Gay. I think he's from Tennessee, so that makes a little more sense, but still LDS kid, Dom and Marcus McKenzie. Both local kids playing at Sky Ridge. Their dad played at BYU. They're heading out there. There's a Pine good chance. View. Or Pineview. Sorry, Snoop Mama is at Sky Ridge. And there's, right. you know, Virginia's in the mix there. Trent Ramsey uh, used to live in Arizona, lives in Florida now. BYU was on him early. They are, Virginia's in the mix there. Other guys in this class, Nusi Milani, Jairus Saitu, Micah Matelau, and Samson Reed. And then obviously we traded, I mean, we cut. Wayne Tawalapapa went to Virginia after his mission because his scholarship was slotted for Lapini Katoa. That one's fine. Both people are happy with that. But so here's, there's about a dozen guys, right? That Broncos in the mix for him when there's already a limited pool of LDS kids. It's like, we don't need another Lance Anderson. We don't need to have Stanford in the West and Virginia in the East trying to sell BYU quote unquote kids on academics and a lot of this will go away with the p5 label now not being a differentiator going forward but we don't need this crap and i i would argue that we do like it's frustrating but it keeps byu on their toes okay it forces byu to recruit better they have to because if they just expect that that kids are going to go to byu and then another BYU East, right, that comes and offers a great academic uh, whatever university opportunity, and they have a mostly LDS coaching staff, BYU can't just expect those kids to come to BYU. Yep. And, and the, other, the other side of this is of those 12 kids, BYU really hasn't – I we, we have to – like it's time, BYU fans, it's time we have – a heart-to-heart conversation. Just because somebody reports an offer from BYU does not mean that BYU wants them in their class. Sometimes offers are extended really early. Sometimes offers are, are extended now because a kid won't pick up the phone unless he has an offer. Like offers can go out for a myriad of different reasons. And it is wrong and incorrect to assume that every offer that goes out is somebody that that school desperately wants. Tennessee offers 300 kids a class. And it's also true that the just because 24-7 ranks someone higher on their scouts opinion, that the coaching staff and their estimations, and especially maybe they talk to, you know, because 24-7, they're watching film, whatever, but they are not talking to coaching staff. There's not figuring out what's going on off the field, all of those other things. And when you look at the whole package, a staff may rank people differently. And 24-7, the star rating system is based on NFL future. And so that doesn't take into account scheme at the college level or anything like that. So 
there's a lot of different reasons that somebody may prefer recruit A over recruit B at college. But I want to, I just want to look at this list, right? Uh, the McKenzie brothers. I love the McKenzie brothers. We've had them on the show. Two of my favorite kids I've ever covered. I, I hope nothing but the best for them. I wanted them badly at BYU. They were not recruited that hard by BYU. For better or worse, throughout the duration of their recruitment, for better or worse, BYU did not seem to have them high on their list. Every time they talked to anybody in the recruiting industry, including me, who a lot of the times when a school-specific reporter asks a recruit, they're going to be very friendly about that school. But even when I reached out to the McKenzie's, it was always schools like Pitt and Arizona and Virginia who were recruiting them harder than BYU. Good, bad, whatever. We could disagree with that decision. But BYU did not prioritize the McKenzie brothers as high as I would have. And so, yeah, Virginia got them, and it looks like a loss on paper. But BYU never really treated it like a loss. They never recruited them very hard. Joe Brown is another one. It looks like a loss on paper. He's more highly rated than Vai Suifua or Peter Falanico. But Joe Brown was not recruited very hard by BYU at all. In fact, I, I think BYU hoped they could get him as a walk-on, and it wasn't until after Virginia offered that BYU went, okay, I guess in order to stay in the conversation, we better extend an offer. And so they offered at that point. But BYU had Peter Falanico and Vai Suifua and Trevin Osler, who I didn't know was Polynesian, but that made me I way higher was... because his, yeah, I think his mom is, is full, I, I want to say Samoan, but I don't know. But his, like you could see already, his frame is significantly bigger than it was when he signed. Made me like him a whole lot more because, wow, I think he's got the genes. But they had uh, uh, Coach Funk and BYU, they had Joe Brown rated below um, Suifua, Falanico, and Osler. And now throw in Kingsley into the mix, who we'll talk about a little bit more later on. Uh, yeah, then there was no room for Joe Brown. Carson Gay and Andrew Gentry, those are the two that I look at this list. Those are the two that, that BYU recruited hard, that they got beat. Um, Andrew Gentry, there's, there, there's a lot of backstory that we're not going to get into, but uh, I, I question whether he ever really wanted to go to BYU. He kind of toyed with them a lot, and it rubbed some BYU feathers the wrong way in the end. Um, but yeah, Virginia won that one out. Carson Gay, I, I got to know his family a little bit. I loved him. And I think he's going to be a very, very special player. And I think that BYU, uh, I think that the family wanted BYU. I think initially BYU was the number one favorite for sure. I think they all hoped the gay, both, I think both gay parents went to BYU. They grew up cheering for BYU. They traveled to Knoxville uh, to watch BYU take on Tennessee. That was Carson's first ever college game. Like they, they loved BYU. Uh, BYU didn't have room for tight ends and they did not recruit Carson Gay as hard as I would have. I think he was a guy that you take no matter what, because he had that kind of skill set. But I, I don't think that BYU agreed with that. I think that BYU looked at future classes and saw guys like Walker Lyons and Jackson Bowers and said, Hey, we could get more tight ends in the future. Uh, right now we don't have a spot for Carson Gay. He's going to go on a mission anyways. Let's try to slow play him a little bit. And Virginia didn't slow play. They recruited him harder than BYU did and they won. But outside of Gentry and Gay, BYU wasn't really actively recruiting any of these guys who have signed with or probably will sign with Virginia in the end. Right. And so that is to say, 
I, I don't know that this is like some crazy epidemic like we think it is. Like Virginia is taking the guys that BYU isn't really pursuing very much. They're, they're taking guys like Trent Ramsey or like Micah Mate Lau. Micah Mate Lau was highly rated early on. Uh, BYU was on him early on. He didn't commit. They filled his spot with guys they liked equal or better than, than Mate Lau. And now maybe he ends up in Virginia. That looks like a loss on paper. BYU is perfectly content. They, they stopped recruiting him. Right. And, and it's so time will tell, right, on whose evaluation was better. And that's part of coaching. Uh, but let's, this is a good time to jump into Kingsley, right? And so this is prime example of recruiting and especially recruiting rankings. So the way 24 7 works, and if you've been living under a rock, Kingsley Suomataya uh, was a five star prospect from Orem High School. He signed with Oregon last year. He is a cousin to both Penne Noah Sewell as well as Chaz Ayu. Um, he's <clears throat> and he, I believe his mom is Jason Ayu's sister. Is that I think that's right? Does that sound right? Yeah. And it's yep. he's named after Kingsley Ayu, who played at BYU. So very strong tie, BYU ties to the family, or BYU ties in the family. And he he entered the portal. It's trending like he will end up in Provo. Um, and fingers crossed, right? He will be a huge immediate impact. So last year, in the, or this year, in the 2021 uh, 24-7 team rankings, BYU was sat at a 71, or 71 nationally. If you moved or just dropped Kingsley into that class, move up 20 spots, almost 19 spots to, or 18 spots to number 53 to basically be tied with TCU. Mm-hmm. Now, Kingsley is a huge deal. He is a first round talent and will be a starter next year. And like, he is good enough that even though Harris Lachance has been good, Harris could get moved to the pine, right. Or move inside and be a really, really tall guard, right. The way Chandon Herring was, that's how good Suomataya is. Yeah. But as a single player by himself, when you think of, Oh, moving 20 spots in recruiting rankings, does a single player on the offensive line have that big of an impact on the game to do that? No. Like as a quarterback, if you are like an absolute Trevor Lawrence type, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say, it depends on the player. Right. But like as an, an off- offensive guard, probably not. Right. A left tackle, maybe. Uh, maybe. Like if maybe. you are like this year, right? How much better now that Lachance has been hurt, how much how different is the game against Baylor if you have a guy like Suamatea playing right tackle instead of Campbell Barrington? Right. And so it's in occasional games, right? But even then, if you're talking about one lineman, right? Probably You have double, you yeah. have double teams, you have tight ends. You can, you know, you don't need to send, go send five guys out on routes every play, right? There's things that you can do. And so it's, it kind of shows that really once you get past that like top 10, once you get past the Georgia, Alabama, Texas, Clemson level recruiting, Ohio state, there's a huge drop off, right? Like it is not, it is insane how much. And even if we added, uh, let's see, I'm going to go in and add one more. I'm trying to think of who else was really highly recruited that we missed out on this year. What's another name? This, this year or? Yeah, in 2021. Like who else besides Kingley, Kingsley could I add? Um, I mean, 
I'm trying to think of the state of Utah. There was like Jackson Dart. Okay, Dart. Yeah, there we go. That's a great um, Jackson Dart. Okay, so 195. So even then, if you added both Dart and Kingsley, that would move us up to being number 27 in the country. Just two players. That's two the dig- players who that's a, and they are phenomenal yeah. players and I would love yeah. to have them. Right. But it's, it, are those two players a 50 position swing or is once you get between 25 and 75, it's all about the same. And it really depends on how Pretty good close. your staff, it was evaluating and how you're going to develop guys and who is going to not have injuries, who is going to like grow into a frame versus is already tapped out who you know, is going to have grade problems and wash out. Who's not going to like the environment and go away. Like there are so many things, right. Yeah. Factors yeah. in it, but basically like obviously higher is better, but really when you are talking about being, having a top 30 class or a top 80 class, the difference is one or two guys. That's it. And, and, now, and, if, you, and, if you do that every year, now you're yeah, talking about yep. eight guys and that's, that's a difference. It, that's a difference maker, right? And like, so you got to trend, but you, you, you have you, to. And and that's why that's why we're recruiting rankings in a single season don't matter. But recruiting rankings as trends over a course of four or five year chunks at a time absolutely do matter. Like one single recruiting class is not going to drastically change your program. But four or five of them stacked up on top of each other definitely it will it 100 will right like clemson getting deshaun watson is great but he had to be paired up with all of those receivers that he had and he had to be paired up with that offensive line that he had and they stacked up recruiting classes and that's what it takes uh because i you know if we if byu added kingsley and jackson dart in 2021 uh maybe they win an extra game or two here along the way because of that but that's about it, right? Like maybe, but let's just say that they would have added Kingsley and Suamatea in 21. Uh, uh, sorry, Kingsley and uh, Jackson Dart in 21. Maybe they add Solotoa Moei and, and Andrew Gentry in, in 2020. They, they add, you know, Tanoa Togiai. They, they add somebody like Cho Bryant Strother. You know, you start adding three or four of those names into this, like over a two, two or three year chunk, all of a sudden, whoa, well, okay. We got, we got a core here. We've got a right. bunch of players. And so that's what it takes. And so this year is an awesome start uh, for BYU. If Kingsley, we have to make sure that we say that if Kingsley, though, it seems like it, it is likely if Kingsley joins the program, guys like Kingsley and Puka Nakua, uh, Cody Hagen, Ice Moa, like those are, that's the core. There's your four guys, right? Four or five guys. That's the start, but you've got to follow that up in the class of 2023 with guys like a Walker Lyons, a Spencer Fano, a, Ta- a Taliafi Taala. If you don't stack it up, then those guys are just going to be the best players on an okay team. But if you can have two or three best players that are coming into your program Every single year, it starts to change your program. It right. drastically changes your program. And even that, so I think getting into consistent top 50 classes is not out of the question. Like we've been hovering in the 70s, give or take, in any given year. And 
adding in, I don't think it's ridiculous to say that there are one or two guys that went liked BYU, but went elsewhere because they wanted a bigger stage. Uh, yeah, and maybe, I mean, and there's Luka probably, and, there's probably and Kingsley are great examples. Right. Right? And so now they're starting to come home. Right. And if, even if you say there's probably three or four of those guys, realistically in every single class, and if you land one or two of those, you're going to be looking at a top 40 class consistently. Yeah. Changes your, changes the entire perception of your program. Right. And so even going back to, so, oh, nice. We, uh, even adding Puka in 2019, that alone would have bumped BYU from 84 to 69 to be between Memphis and SMU. Now Puka is a game changer, right? And it's, but still 15, 15 spots from one player. I think it's, you, it's, you got to look at, you know, the whole and it's, yeah, it is a lot. And it's, so I, that is something to keep in mind and follow going forward. Um, and I guess we did talk about King. So the last thing I have on our agenda before we can get into our watch list here, I want to talk about time of possession. This is something that has frustrated me to no end. I wrote at length about it yesterday in a VIP newsletter that I sent out with more hard numbers looking at it. So let's just talk. So it, it's really been a huge complaint since the coastal game last year. No one ever talked about time of possession until that game. And even then they talked about it and blamed the defense and Blaine said it was the defense's fault that we lost that game because the offense didn't have more chances to score. Like people realize you have at most one more opportunity to score than the other team, unless there's onside kicks involved or your team captain when winning the coin toss says they want to kick to start the game rather than deferring their decision to the second half. So stupid. So you have one more chance at most. And the only way that happens is like, you receive the opening kickoff, you go into halftime with the ball, but then the next half, the other team's going to get the ball first. And if you finish the game with the ball, that means you had one extra possession in the first half and you had equal in the second half. But if the other team finishes with the ball, then you had one extra in the first half, they had one extra in the second half and is equal for the game, right? Like that's the only, it is at most without an onside kick, you can have one more possession than the other team. And so they're, like with that said, like in the coastal game last year, it didn't matter that there were not enough possessions or we needed more chances to score because we still had plenty of chances and didn't score. And we lost by a single score. We were one yard short of scoring a touchdown on the last play of the game and winning. And so we had all of those other chances to score. And even then, if you're saying we needed to give more chances to score every time, because you only have one, every time you take an extra op, like hurry up to try to get another opportunity for your team to score. You are also giving another opportunity to the other team to potentially score. Mm-hmm. And so with a game like Virginia, where they love to go hurry up and even, you know, we, and it's not just the defense. So this is one thing that I, there's one number that I put in VIP thing, the offense. And I asked you this and I asked in our, on the discord people guessed how long the average drive length we have on offense versus defense and I loved the responses, by the way, they were all wildly off and it's, and it's similar to like missed tackles. Like it's our perce- and similar to like the rush three drop eight thing. It's like our perception from watching games and the things we latch onto that are frustrating color, the reality of what's mm-hmm. happening. And it's, I'm the same way, right? Like, unless you go back and look at it, once you're a few days removed from the game and can take the emotion out of it, it will piss you off. But yeah. on the year, our average defensive drive is 177 seconds of clock. On offense, it's 166. 
there's an 11, that's two plays, right? Ish, depending on how fast you're going, even maybe not. Cause it's, you know, you look at tempo, right? Like it, if you yeah. watch our games, our offense is content to take the entire play clock. Like we want to chew games and limit possessions. Like we want to chew clock. And it's not like we are going go fast, go hard. And then the defense can't get off the field. And so it's like our possessions are 30 seconds and we're throwing up all these points. And then the other team, you know, the defense is taking 12 minutes at, you know, that's not what's happening. Like it is limiting possessions is there. And even then, even no matter how many possessions you have, it's only a matter of you need to score one more time than the other team does, right? And it's like the clock and needing urgency only matters if you're down multiple scores because for every score that you're down, you need another possession to climb back mm-hmm. in. So then mm-hmm. that's where like your tempo matters. But if you are within one score, you don't need to change your tempo because if you are like, oh, we're down one score and we talk about like in Boise, right? In the third quarter, be like, oh, there's no urgency. It's okay like, hey, if it's in the third quarter, you know, you're down one score, you need to go get a score and tie it. You're right back in. If like, but if you go say, Hey, we need to go hurry up. We're not comfortable with going, go fast, go hard. Like the super up-tempo offense. Now we're not playing our game and sure. Okay. We try to force a couple more possessions in there, but it's sloppy. So then we give the other team a couple more chances to score. You can shoot yourself in the foot where now you turned your one score lead or one score deficit into a two or three score. And now you do have to play that way for the rest of the game. So when, but I've seen people say like, we need to like keep Virginia off the field. So that way we can give our offense the get the, our offense, the ball more with chances to score. I have seen that say multiple times and it like, it does not make sense. Cause if you stop to actually think about it, because if you give the offense, your offense, a chance to score, that means you either gave up points quickly or you got to stop. And if you got to stop, it's not the fact that you gave your offense a chance to score as mm-hmm. like, it's not just that it's that you prevented them from scoring. Like no matter what, it's going to be back and forth and who is going to score more. Like we need to trade a touchdown for a field goal or get, have one more scoring drive than they did. Right. That's how you win a game. And it doesn't matter like, oh, well, they have this high flying offense. So we need to get them off the field. So our offense can actually go out and score. It's like, it doesn't matter. We're still going to have the same number of possessions, right? They may have one more chance, hold the ball one more time than us. And if that happens and yet losing a one score game, yeah, it came down to that. But, and maybe, you know, you said, hey, that costs us. But when you shorten the game with number of possessions, it's like by two, it's not, or you go really up tempo. It may be like you have two more possessions in a game than Listen, most. Listen, Garrett. All I want is for BYU to blitz every play to stop the offense from gaining any yards or scoring any points and to also keep that offense off the field for 60 minutes a game while BYU's offense is simultaneously scoring on every drive. That's all I want. Okay, I I think we can dial that up. So really you're saying the only acceptable thing is – a three and out followed by a Pukunakua touchdown or Tyler Alger run on the first play of the ensuing yeah. possession every single time. Yeah. I mean, basically, right. except and, and, I, I want, if it's like that, then our defense is going to be on the field for too long and we won't win the time of possession battle. That damn time of possession gets us every time. And that's yeah. really what I'm saying. It's like, it's not time of possession without any content doesn't tell you anything. Right. Cause it's right. time of possession. Okay, what like it could be Virginia. Look at the Wake Forest Army game. Wake Forest dropped 70 points in 17 minutes last <laughs> week against Army. 
and they won by two touchdowns and like a blow what the final score of that game was like 70 to 56 or something like that yeah something wild and so it's like you have that it's like okay time of possession it could be your offense is scoring fast it could be your offense sucks and you're having three and outs that's why in 2013 2014 we had tons of possessions because we went go fast go hard and we'd have three and outs that took 12 seconds off the clock right and it's you know and you don't want that and then it's there's the flip side of it of okay well if you do do that i mean there were tons of complaints about how in 2013 2014 the flip side of the offense couldn't stay on the field so the defense was exhausted because the offense was just doing helping them like not helping them at all and so you have that, but okay, if your defense is forcing a three and out right away and your offense is struggling to mm-hmm. find a rhythm, if you go force a three and out, you're not giving a lot of time for your quarterback to go to get on the phone, talk to the coordinator, talk about what you're seeing, give the O-line time to talk about what they're seeing and kind of regroup for that next thing. So the approach, like, that's why a few weeks ago when Elias Tuyaki said like, you know, obviously they would love to get more three and outs. This happens not saying it, but it, like, it's not the end of the world to give up a couple first downs. If it means that your offense, when you do get off the field, right. can be more put together because in, if, even if you take out two positions, would you rather score on 40% of 10 possessions or 30% of 12 possessions? Well, and that's quite frankly in the, in today's era of college football, where all teams are slowing down. Yes. The national average has dropped a possession and a half three drives a game since in the last five years everybody is slowing down and so that puts a premium on those offensive possessions where they have to be they have to be more more refined more tactical they they have to take advantage of them because they're not going to get that extra possession and a half every game right and so it, it it really is interesting to me um and one thing is we we talk about all these nuances that that you know happens in a game um, I think it's easy. I think what this uncovers is how easy it is for fans to look at why your team lost the game. And I, I would like to issue an official give them hell, Brigham challenge to anybody who is listening to this show prior to BYU's game against Virginia that will be coming up on Saturday night, regardless of the outcome of this game, whichever team wins, Instead of responding why BYU lost or why BYU won, I, I, I want find why the team that won won, right? That's the challenge. Instead of talking about why BYU lost and even why Virginia lost, because that's what we tend to do. It's a lot easier to find what you did wrong, right? Find why the team that won won the game. And in your explanation to us to on the fireside chat whether on 24 7 message boards or on twitter or to your friends at church don't talk about the things that byu did wrong or that virginia did wrong talk about why the team that won won and that's it what did they do to earn that win so that means you don't talk about how boise won by saying well byu turned it over three times Because at the end of the day, yes, BYU did. They turned it over three times. But Boise also controlled the ball. They kept BYU's offense off the field. They converted in the red zone. They were effective on third downs. Like there were a myriad of things that Boise did to win that game. Baylor, instead of saying that BYU just missed a whole bunch of tackles and they couldn't get off the field and the offensive line sucked and the defensive line sucked and everybody sucked, what did BYU or what did Baylor do to beat BYU? It changes the way you watch the game. Find why the team that won, won the game. Instead of finding why your team lost or won. Watch both teams. 
And I think I, I try, I, I try to do that. I, I watch the first time I, I watch every game at least twice. And the first time I watch, I watch with the emotion because that's why we're fans. It's fun. I, I love to feel that emotion, but that second time through when I already know what's going to happen, it's why is this team winning? And it changes the entire outlook of the game. You start to become impressed by the schemes or what it is that, that the offense is doing. That's taking away what the defense wants to do. We have this misnomer, I think, as fans, that it's always your your team either won the game because they're better or they gave away the game because they, they, they lost, right? They somehow caused this loss. But if you want to become a football fan, you have to look at, at what that other team is doing and you have to take away the, the fandom and it, it changes the way that the game looks. And so and that's it, my official challenge. I think that is a good challenge. And it really, because it's, Right. Like it, when you watch it that way, it allows you to appreciate the fact that sometimes other guys just make plays, right? Like yeah, it's, well, and, every... and it's not necessarily like, oh, we had bad coverage. It's like, okay, well, if the receiver jumped up through double coverage and makes a one handed catch, like, what do you do about that? Like, it's well, you just, it... guys can make plays. And so if you say, what did they do to win? Right. Then it's that. But if you say, what did we screw up? You don't leave room for just sometimes dudes are dudes, right? And, like, and, Every like defense, let's take defense. There is not a single defense in the world, whether it be Alabama or whether it be Georgia, anybody that can take away everything on every play. Like the name of defense is not, we're going to stop them from gaining yards. That's not what any defensive coordinator ever does. The, the art of coordinating a defense is okay. We're going to try to figure out what we think the offense does well and we're going to dis- we're going to be the ones that dictate what we allow them to have cuz you can't take away everything there's always going to be something that's there for the offense to to take advantage of but if we can dictate what it is that the offense is taking advantage of we feel that our game plan is good enough to win as a defense right and when you watch the game that way it changes things right because yeah it's frustrating when it's third and 5 and somebody converts on third down that gets really really irritating but if you watch it and it's like okay well what is what is BYU trying to do on this third and five well they want to get off the field of course and they think they're going to do that by forcing the ball to one side of the field or taking away the the big play and they're going to make a quarterback make a perfectly accurate throw that's timed perfectly right at the chains for six yards or they're going to take away the run and it's going to have to be put into the air, whatever it is, right? There's always something that the defense is going to give up. And, and when you watch that of, of how did the offense take advantage rather than, Oh, wow. BYU's defense sucks so bad. They gave up that third down. You start to see and understand like the back and forth of, of what goes on in the coaching and the game plans and the scheme. And it makes it more entertaining to watch and then you start to understand i think a little bit more and i'm no football genius by any stretch but you start to understand why you know like watching it that way makes all of the the robert and i third and 19 draw plays make sense because what is the defense doing the defense is taking away absolutely everything deep on third and long they are taking away everything over the middle they are playing zone they are playing they are going to make you 
earn that third down because you're not going to be able and to get it. Sometimes you have to, like, it doesn't, offense doesn't do its thing and defense doesn't do its thing completely separate of each other. Like you have to match tempo on things and how you run right. things. You can play in. Sometimes you have to trust like the third and 19 draw. If you're on your own 10 yard line, you have to trust that your defense, like that you have to trust that your punter can pin them deep the field. and that right. your defense exactly. can do it. Like you have to trust it is a team game. It is not an offensive game and a defensive game and a special teams game. Like it is a team game with all three units working together. Right. For the and same so, thing. So when, when you change your mindset and you watch that third and 19 play and you look at the defense and you say, Oh, wow. They took away the sidelines. They took away the deep ball and they took away the edges. Like they were going to make that play go up the middle. So BYU took what was there. It went for seven yards, not even close to the first down. Super frustrating. But how many plays are going to be in the playbook that can get a 20-yard gain without the deep ball, without the edges, and without the sideline? There's not very many. And if BYU could call that play and make it work, then, then kudos to them. But sometimes if the play existed, everyone would call it every time because uh, you right. don't care. You just want to get you want if there's a play to magically get 20 yards every time, you do it. Yeah, exactly. And so when you start to watch it that way, you go, wow, Virginia did a damn good job. They knew that they needed to get 19. And they said, hey, we're willing to give up 12, but you're not going to get 19. And the only way you're going to do it is if you make a freak of nature play. It changes it. You're not mad at that draw call anymore because you realize, yeah, okay. Virginia had it in a situation that they they won that game. They're, they won that that round. And then you punt and you trust your defense. It's not it just yeah. changes the way you watch the game, right? It, it does change it. And it's so my prediction, I guess is my prediction for this game, agree with all what you said, is it's right. The two teams, they play very different styles. Virginia is has a ton of positions per game. BYU has a lot fewer per game. Actually, mm-hmm. I can tell you. So BYU is averaging 10 and a half possessions per game this year. And Virginia is averaging do, 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 do. Come on. It's thinking 13 and a half. Oh, no, never. I lied. That's, uh, yeah. And so, or 12 and a half. So they're averaging 2%. Here. So Virginia likes to go fast and they are more in line with the national average. We, we like to slow play it. That's fine. So whichever team, as we talked about, like it's, it's always tit for tat. You're going to have the same number of chances. You got to make one more play than the other guy. It's a game of inches. And so it's, you know, one more, like Jake Oldroyd can't miss that 40 yard field goal. You know, we can't have that first single stalls out and ends up in a field goal instead of a touchdown. It's like, those are the things where you're saying, do we need to give the offense? Do we need to play faster to give our offense more chances to where those more chances you're talking about needing to drive 75 yards and get a touchdown or should we just tighten up that first and goal and not lose four points by kicking a field goal instead of getting across the goal line, right? That's yeah. where the difference can, like that is the low hanging fruit to get the points over whatever the team that can control and play at the pace they want is the team that is going to win on Saturday. If we can chew the clock and go at the leisurely or not leisurely, the deliberate pace that we like to, which should is doable because Virginia's defense is worse than our defense very bad. And it's then we will be comfortable. And because Virginia likes to go faster, if they get stuck to where they, you know, they can't go at the speed they want. And we are chewing up time, moving our way down the field, not really necessarily taking a big shot at all the time. Like we're just methodically going down the field and they're on the sideline. Like 
a lot of those systems like that, those up-tempo systems, it's like all about rhythm. And if you have a guy standing on the sideline, they come out, they feel cold, they feel off. That's how to do it. But if they go super quick and then we have to jump right back out there on offense, now we are the ones who feel like we have to go super fast because it's like we had a three and out. We get out there and you kind of get down in this little rut to where we don't feel comfortable. And so it's whichever team can play the game and can control the clock on both sides of the ball to be the way they want to go, then that is where that's what team is going to win. And so I, my guess for this game is that the final score will be 38 to 34. It's not going to be a blowout. It's not going to be like a 55 to 50 Toledo shootout. Right. But that was my, that's my final prediction for, for this game. It may, it may even be lower scoring than that. I could say 28, 24. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I don't know, man. I think that, it feels weird to say a Bronco team is going to struggle with elevation, but this is Virginia. They don't come here very often. Um, it's, it's going to be late. It's going to be late at night. I remember I, I actually went back in Virginia, 594 feet. So yeah, I, that's a difference. I, I went back and I looked um, at that spring ball when Anai came back in 2013 uh, and he did an interview and I was, I, I was looking at this clip uh, for other reasons, because I was just looking for some awesome Robert and I quotes. And this was the one where he said, well, help me understand the purpose of your question. And uh, I loved the interview because it was funny. But one thing that he said is that during the media observation period of practice, so the last you know 10 or 15 minutes, whatever it was, the offense got smoked. It was bad, right? Bad, bad. And why was it bad? And he, he said, well, they're fatigued their conditioning is not up and it, they were gassed and for whatever that 10 or 15 minute period was the offense looked terrible. Virginia is conditioned. They are running the Virginia offense, but at altitude late at night, I mean, this is, I mean, you're, you're seriously, we're, we're talking that the fourth quarter of this game is going to be played at one 30 at night, Virginia time. I, I don't know that they're going to be able to go as fast as Robert and I likes. And so if it's a close game in the fourth quarter, like if, if, you know, if Virginia's up by 25 points because they came out hot and BYU made some mistakes or whatever, then, then this doesn't matter. But if it's a close game in the fourth quarter, I don't think that Virginia will be able to stay conditioned that they will be able to stay at this. That will be when Tyler Algier takes over offensively and that will be when Brandon Armstrong makes mistakes. The other thing I like in this game, I like Jacob Boren in this game. I like Jacob Boren a lot. I don't know who he's going to guard, but one thing that Jacob Boren did really well uh, against Washington State is he takes away the, the underneath deep ball. He is fast enough that he can go stride for stride with just about any wide receiver. He's not very big. He gives up a lot in zone coverage, right? Like he's not the best over the middle. He's young and he's a walk-on. But when it comes to going deep, he can run stride for stride with anybody. What does that do? That forces a quarterback to throw deep. They have to get over the top of their wide receiver. And that's and harder that is, to do. That's harder to do. And that is where Malik Moore is making plays. Isaiah Heron, his, his interception against Washington State. Isaiah Heron pulled up on the ball, but Isaiah Heron was, was running stride for stride until that ball was in the air. And he knew he could see right away. Oh, there's, there's no way this receiver catches that foul. 
So he gives up, right? Like, because it's so far over his head and Malik Moore runs underneath it. Jacob Boren has that ability. He can hang with any wide receiver that Virginia has. And knowing Robert and I, the way we know Robert and I, and knowing what we know about this Virginia offense this year from, from film, they want to push the ball down the field a lot. I think this is a big, big, big game for Jacob Boren. He doesn't have to have a single PBU at the end of the game. He doesn't have to have an interception at the end of the game. But if he can take away the back shoulder throw, if he could take away that pass interference call and force Brennan Armstrong to go deep, I don't think Brennan Armstrong is disciplined enough to take that short pass route, to take the underneath route. He loves to go deep, and that offense wants to go deep. This could be a game where Malik Moore is getting a couple of interceptions or has opportunities at the free safety spot. He's a ball hawk. He understands like he, he, he missed two interceptions, right? But he knows where that ball is going. And if Jacob Boren forces Armstrong to throw deep, I think Malik Moore is, is going to have a big game. And it will be created by Jacob Boren. Amen. Um, and, and really in terms of offense too, this passing attack, it, it really a lot of it is aided by this pace at which they move. Like their offense yeah. is not that much more. It's not like it's extremely different than obviously they've played a little bit of a tougher schedule but it's like quarterback plates kind of similar to Jaden Delore and Logan Bonner. Like it's not like it's, he really just has volume, right? Because Virginia, I mean, Armstrong is second in the country passing, right? 3,200 yards. Great. Like they've had a few, their last couple games have been insane um, in terms of the number of points that they've had, but they've had a ton of possessions, whatever. But then you look at their leading rusher is Wayne Tola Papa's got 250 yards. Right. They and also haven't a, played anybody yet. I, I want to point this out that the only top 70 scoring defense that they've played is Wake Forest, and they scored 17 points. Right. Every other defense that they've played has been ranked sub 70 in total offense and, to, and scoring, or sorry, total defense and scoring defense. FEI's rankings, it's a little bit better, but like their average ranking is still like 65, 66 compared to like BYU, right? That BYU's played multiple top 30 defenses. The FBI average ranking of all of the defenses that BYU has faced is like high 50s. I think it's like 52 or 53. Virginia hasn't played anybody. And as bad as as bad as BYU's defense has been at times this year, statistically, this is still by any metric, at worst, the second or third best defense that Virginia has seen, and by most, most metrics, the best defense right. that Virginia has seen this year. And so it, context is important, and it's hard to watch all of these games, and that's why we dig up these things and so we can talk about them, right? And so we do have – I mean, let's get to our slate. We're, we're going long. We're we've run through our, gen, we've yeah. run through our agenda, um, and our lunch hour is over an hour now. A mm. uh, couple big games that I like on Saturday going through. Iowa-Wisconsin, if you want some – very big 10 football you're you're gonna see that you could probably watch that because it'll probably be about two hours long because uh-huh. there'll be about 80 rushing attempts and four passes yep and kirk ferentz will still can t- try to tell himself that iowa's offense is revolutionary instead of firing his kid um <laughs> the texas baylor kicks off at the same time i would i would keep an eye on that one uh virginia tech georgia tech is intriguing one georgia tech took virginia to the wire last week if Georgia Tech wins on Saturday. There's a good chance that Justin Fuente is no longer employed by the Virginia Tech Hokies come Monday. Um, 
the big, the big, big matchup in the Big Ten in the early slate is Michigan, Michigan State. That's six and eight playing each other. Um, top 10 matchup. Michigan is a four point favorite on the road. And this is really Michigan state is undefeated, but they've had a light schedule and it's, we're about to have a bloodbath of a November for that big 10 East because Michigan, Michigan state, Penn state, and Ohio state, none of those four teams have played any of their three games against each other yet. Yeah. That's what's so wild is we're talking about a Saturday where Ohio state and Penn state play, and it's not the biggest game in the big 10. Right. And it's crazy. And it, Speaking and so this is also something to keep in mind of because if the Big Ten gets three teams into the New Year Six, there's a very good chance that BYU will be playing in the Guaranteed Rate Bowl in Phoenix instead of the Independence Bowl in Shreveport. And which I'm gonna throw this out there: if you are a Give em Hell listener in the in Arizona or will be in Arizona around that game because the Guaranteed Rate Bowl is on December 28th, let's get a group together and just go to that game. It's at Chase Field where the D-backs play, and tickets start at 25 bucks. Like even if BYU is not playing, it'll be a fun outing to go and it'll be a big 10, big 12 matchup. It's usually a pretty, it's one of the better bowl games anyway, just stylistically wise they match up well. Um, to, to do going else, it really is late night I, game. I'm excited for Fresno, San Diego state. That it's game eight, is going to be fun. Off. That's going to be fun. That is going to be fun. There's not a ton of other like good matchups in the day, like Wyoming, San Jose state, meh. There's no story unless it like, Ooh, Kansas and Oklahoma state, who cares? Oregon state Cal at four o'clock is a good one. Oregon state is a lot better than this. And we got to support the Beavers because they beat Utah last week. Um, uh, yes. North Carolina, Notre Dame. That's got upset written all over it. Notre Dame's been iffy and North Carolina has Sam Howell at the end of the day. That right. could be an upset. Um, at four or I guess five o'clock uh, mountain. Um, we got three games all starting at the same time. Ole Miss Auburn, that would be a fun one. Bonix versus Matt Corral, see what the uh, Brian Harson can dial up against the Rebels. Uh, Mississippi State and Kentucky. Uh, I like Kentucky. Still feels like an underdog, even though they've been better under Stoops. So yeah. I, I want to see my, them do well. The my big very one favorite there, game. My very favorite. favorite game. Is it your favorite game? Because it's mine. Is it the next one I'm about to say? I think. Is so. it, is it an AAC matchup? It is. Okay, SMU Houston. Yes, sir. That's going to be that line is a pick 'em. That's a pick 'em right now. SMU is ranked 19 and undefeated. Houston is 6 and 1. Their only loss came week 1 on the road against Texas Tech. Yeah. So, this is it's that's, Houston. That's going to be a fun game. That's going to be a fun game and uh I don't know, maybe it's a tryout for who's going to be Texas Tech's next head coach. I don't know what Holgerson Ooh. will do. But Texas Tech fired their coach this week, and I think Sonny Dykes is probably number one on that board. Yeah, him or Jeff Trailer. I think they're, um, they're, they're both up there. I mean, other, obviously, I mean, there is Ohio State, Penn State. Uh, UCLA and Utah kick off at the same time we do. That is the other one. We, we need the Bruins to win. I, you know, it's... Yeah, you got to have that. Uh, my parting shot here, and this is why I fear for Zach Wilson's future a little bit. Not that he's not going to be good, but if he's not... I follow a few Jets fans. Um, uh, one of them, they have officially written a children's book about Adam Gaze and the Jets. And it says, yes, this is real. It's going to be on sale in the near future. Think Dr. Seuss with explicit language regarding the Gaze tenure. It was illustrated by someone in, in Indonesia on Craigslist. One, why haven't we done this? We absolutely should. And two, if Zach Wilson struggles, like this is what his future looks like as a former Jets quarterback is Yikes. they're paying people on Craigslist to illustrate children's books with not safe for work language. Garrett, I'm going to take a stab at a children's book just for what it's worth. 
Okay, let's do it. Um, that will be our next thing. Is it? I don't know what it's going to be, but there's. Uh, have you seen? There's like the ABCs of hip hop. That's a that's a children's book. Like it's yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah, a couple things like that. Uh, I mean, I Jeff, was kind of thinking everybody poops. Maybe that would be uh, our yes. framework. Oh, I thought. Or there's the also there's a book go the f to sleep and there's on Ooh, youtube yeah. there's, there's a video of like morgan freeman or samuel L. jackson doing the commentary of it uh, we're, we're gonna take a stab at this but so jeff it has been a good episode uh we've talked about a lot we've covered a lot i'm tired of talking about i want to mm-hmm. talk like you said focus on why teams won i want to talk about what byu does i don't give a rat's ass what bronco benton hall at virginia does this is about byu byu needs to control the game we need to own the line of scrimmage. We need to get that wide zone going. If you, if the term wide zone does not mean anything to you, come join the Discord, hop in the film room channel. There's an hour long video explaining it that we posted there and come, come learn with us and get Tyler Algio going, just control that line of scrimmage and keep that Virginia out of the rhythm that they want to get into. Yeah, without doubt. And with that said, Jeff, give them hell. Give them hell.